Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I've been waiting for you. I am the storyteller. But you probably remember that. Or then again, maybe you don't remember it. Memory is a fickle thing, is it not? Stories and events change over time in our minds, but they don't change. Not really. The story itself stays the same, unchanged, constant, set in stone. That's why it's important that we tell the important stories over and over and over again. Wouldn't you agree? Of course you would. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here this morning. I could tell you so many different stories. Stories that would move you, change you, inspire you. Others that would make you rethink everything. Still others that would frighten you. I have stories upon stories upon stories in my library, most of which I know by heart. But today, I want to tell you the story of all stories. Every other story is connected to this story. Like streams flowing into rivers that flow into the ocean, every other story is connected and flows into this story in one way or another. And I've told you before that at its core, this is a story of redemption, of grace. It's a love story about a prince who leaves his castle to go win back his bride. It's an adventure story about a hero who crosses into enemy territory to free the captives enslaved in darkness there. It's this epic tale of the deepest kind of love. Love that sacrifices all, gives all, shuns all for those that don't even deserve it in the least. And at the center of this story is a baby that's more than a baby, a man that's more than a man, a hero, but more than a hero, a God. But unlike any God you've ever heard of in other religions, gods of stone, gods of wrath alone, gods far away, no. The one at the center of this story is greater than any of that. And a story this epic, this far-reaching, this important, it takes more than one telling to convey, more than one vantage point to comprehend in its totality. And that's why I've decided to tell you this story from four different vantage points. I won't tell you all four today, otherwise you'd miss lunch. And like I always say, that's not good for anyone. But last time I was with you, I started this story at the very beginning, as most good storytellers would with the vantage point of the prophets, the flame bearers, the carriers of the hope of the promise. Today, we shift our focus to a new and different vantage point. I know this vantage point, this story by heart. After all, it's not my first time telling it. But with a story as important as this one, one should not take liberties. 
And so I'll stick to the script today. But if your memory has not yet failed you, you'll remember that God passed on the hope of the promise, the flame of the prophecy, to prophet after prophet after prophet over thousands of years. This prophecy that there would be someone who would come, who would be different, who would defeat the serpent once and for all, who would save us all. For thousands of years, God gave the prophecy until finally it stopped. There was this deep and piercing prophetic silence as if our good and loving God had said enough. Silence for 400 long years. Like the silence before the show starts. Like the quiet that comes on a crowd when an honored dignitary or a king is announced. Like the hush as everyone turns and waits for the bride to appear. And into this silence, he came. The promised one finally appeared and the countdown of BC got to zero and there was this new beginning. And you won't believe who his coming was announced to first. But I'll let him tell it from his own vantage point. After all, I said I'd stick to the script today. It goes like this. I am not an important person. I have no clout or authority, no status, very little money. No one looks at me with respect or admiration. No, mine is not a charmed life. I barely get by, barely feed my family. My job's not easy. I, I face biting wind on freezing nights for hours on end, the withering heat from the summer sun. I fight off predators and wild beasts, all the while going on very little sleep. My job is not easy. And yet, I'm still poor. Looked down on as though my lot in life was punishment for some sin I've committed or some sin my parents committed before me. I'm a shepherd. I watch the sheep, protect the sheep in my flock. I'm not alone. We take shifts, but I'm with the sheep most of the day and most of the night, every day and every night. I'm with them so much that I even smell like them. That's one of the reasons people avoid me on my long walks back home each morning. But that's not the only reason people avoid me. You see, I'm not the most religious person either. I haven't been that devout. None of us shepherds are, really. We don't get to observe the Sabbath because the sheep don't observe the Sabbath. That means we don't go to the synagogue all that much. And I'll be honest, we tend to be a pretty rough bunch of guys. It's not uncommon for my flock to grow by a few sheep. At the exact moment, my neighbor's flock loses a few sheep, if you know what I mean. 
It's not just me, though. We all do that. It's been that way for ever. That's why the courts don't even accept the testimony of a shepherd. We're considered dishonest and untrustworthy, and for good reason. I'm a shepherd, poor, dishonest, not religious, or at least that was me before what happened. You see, that's what makes my story so unexpected. From my vantage point, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, we've heard of the Messiah. Of course we have. It's all the rabbis ever talk about. My mom talked about it all the time, too, when I was a kid. There will be a rescuer, a savior, someone who will set things right, someone who will overthrow Rome and bring back the days of King David and King Solomon. Anytime anyone dealt with hard times or struggles, which was almost all the time for me and my family, they would mention the Messiah. As if to say, this is difficult, but we still have hope. The Messiah was our hope. But if I'm totally honest, it wasn't really my hope. I mean, if you hear something over and over and over like that, it becomes background noise. I would never tell anyone that or argue with a rabbi or anything. I figure they know their stuff. I'm just saying that for me, the Messiah was just a nice idea, a fairy tale, so far off that it didn't really affect me. I was just focused on getting by, on staying awake during the night shift, making sure I didn't lose any of my sheep so I didn't lose my job, getting just enough to feed my family. The Messiah wasn't on my mind back then at all. But if you would have asked me who he would be born to, I wouldn't have said some poor couple from Galilee. And if you would have asked me who would be told about his coming first, I would have probably said something like the most devout, the religious people, maybe the high priests. I definitely wouldn't have put myself or the other night shift shepherds on the list. I don't think anyone would have. So what happened, it was all very unexpected. The flock I keep is just outside of my little hometown called Bethlehem. The only claim to fame for my hometown is that it was where King David was born. But that was about a thousand years ago, so it's almost forgotten. That night was like every other night. I was together with the other shepherds watching over our flock in the middle of the night. It was dark, it was cold, and I was tired. We all were. I remember we had just been talking about how to get the shepherds from the field next to us back for stealing two of our sheep the night before. They didn't think we knew it was them, but we did. It was just like any other night until... All of a sudden, it wasn't. One second, it was dark and cold and lonely. And then the next, it was bright and warm and different. It was so bright that we shielded our eyes and scrambled back from the light as fast as we could. I fell as I tried to back away. Most of us did. And then I saw, we saw the source of the bright light, a man 
But he couldn't have been a man because light shone all around him and he just looked different. Plus he had just appeared out of nowhere. And I don't know how to describe it except to say that the glory of the Lord was all around him and us. We could see it and we could feel it. And it was terrifying. We all got as far away as we could, as fast as we could. We didn't know what was happening. Later, I would come to call the man an angel, a messenger from God himself. I'm no expert on angels, never seen one before this, but that's the only thing that makes sense. So we were terrified, which made the angel's words pretty interesting. He said, fear not. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's too late for that. If he didn't want us to be afraid, he should have just walked up casually. That might have been less terrifying. But he launched into this kind of proclamation. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ is just another word for Messiah. In the city of David, that's my hometown, Bethlehem. Good news doesn't even begin to describe it. The angel was saying that the Messiah, the promised one who would save us all, establish his kingdom and hopefully get me out of this dead-end job and lowly existence, had just been born here. It was a lot to digest. I thought I may be dreaming. Maybe I fell asleep. It's happened before on these night shifts. The Messiah had been born. He'd finally come, but why was the angel telling us this? Of all people, why us? I mean, I'm not versed in what angels know and don't know, but maybe he got the wrong address. Maybe he doesn't realize what kind of person I am. But I didn't have time to figure all that out because the angel kept proclaiming. He said, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That part didn't make any sense to any of us. What was he talking about? The Messiah would be wrapped in rags and lying in a feeding trough? How could that be? He was supposed to be the king of kings, greater than David or Solomon. That much I knew. So how could he be in a feeding trough? Again, I didn't have time to think it through because right when the angel was done speaking, everything got even more terrifying. One second there was one angel, and the next there were thousands all around us, and they were all saying in unison, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace to those with whom he is pleased? Now I knew the angels had made a wrong turn. Or maybe the other guys were more righteous than I thought they were, because I sure wasn't. There's no way that God was pleased with me. There was this battle going on in me, and I was still terrified by all that had happened, but I also began to feel something, something I hadn't felt in a long time, something like hope. The angels drifted into heaven, and me and my fellow shepherds, my group of outcasts and delinquents, We're left there staring into the starry sky, dumbfounded, speechless, 
What now? All of us were still sitting on the ground from when the angel first appeared and we tried to run away. Then I heard someone say, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Okay, sound like a good plan to me. I still wasn't sure if I was supposed to be a part of this whole thing, but I was definitely going to go check it out. So we all got up and we did the one thing we had never done before. We left our flock alone. We figured the angels and the whole Messiah coming made it okay. We ran as fast as we could towards Bethlehem. I didn't know what we would say when we got there. I mean, what do you say to the parents of the Messiah? They must be important, rich, maybe even royal. The kind of people I never talked to. There were a lot of people in town for the census, but we just went off of what the angel had said. As crazy as it sounded to us, the Messiah would be lying in a feeding trough. So we asked innkeepers if they had any pregnant guests staying with the animals, and sure enough, there was one. We got directions from the innkeeper, and we kept running, and we found them. We found him in a cave where animals were kept. The Messiah, the King of Kings, the one who would save us all was Wrapped in rags. It looked like someone's shirt, probably his dad's. And lying in a manger, a feeding trough. His parents, Mary and Joseph, we learned later, were were with him. They weren't kings or queens. They weren't rich. They weren't Pharisees or rabbis or even special. Mary and Joseph were common, like us. Like me. But this was, without a doubt, the Messiah. He had come. He had finally come to save us. We ran up and stopped kind of abruptly, breathing hard after our long run. Mary and Joseph just looked at us with shock. We probably looked pretty crazy. Once we caught our breath, we just blurted out all that had happened, the angels, the proclamation, all of it. And they were amazed by it. They asked us to tell it again and again, and they just smiled. As if this was just part of a story they knew well. They almost expected it. Later, I found out why that was. Joseph and Mary had been freaked out by their own angels. We sat there for what seemed like hours, looking at him. At this baby who would save us all. The Messiah, the promised one that had been prophesied about for thousands of years. The one who would finally defeat that serpent that had deceived our first grandparents, Adam and Eve. And as I looked around at the other shepherds, at Mary and at Joseph, at the feeding trough, I couldn't help but think that maybe, maybe we had it all wrong. Maybe the Messiah wasn't just for the religious or the rich. Maybe he was here for the delinquents, the outcasts, the failures, the mess-ups, like me. Even people like me. That's the end of the shepherd's vantage point on our story.
the story of all stories. But as I've told you before, my job as the storyteller is not just to tell the stories, but to help you understand them, to connect the dots here and there. And when you've been doing this as long as I have, you do that kind of naturally. Jesus came to earth, not in glory and power like you and I would have, but in an act of humble love, the likes of which the world had never seen. He didn't kick in the doors of earth. He slid in, quiet, small, gentle, humble. One of the most famous storytellers of all time, the Apostle Paul, said it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Listen, the good news of the Christmas story is that Jesus came for the poor. And whether you're a king or a beggar or somewhere in between, That's you. Spiritually, all of us are poor. We're desperate. We're destitute. We can't get out of our own mess without Jesus' help. Jesus left the riches and glory of heaven, entered into a sin-saturated world so that you and I might experience the riches and glory of a relationship with God. Even though we didn't deserve it, even though we couldn't afford it, even though we were poor. That's good news for the poor. That's good news for you. If you'll accept how poor you are without Jesus, how much you need him. It's good news for you, but it goes beyond that. It goes way beyond just you. Listen, this manger scene, it wasn't some cute and cuddly, snuggly little story. It was cow spit and wet hay, cold air and warm animal dung. That's how God has chosen, did choose to spend his first night on planet earth. The swaddling cloths they wrapped him in, most of your scholars believe that those were probably torn from the undergarments of Mary and Joseph because it's all that they had. They were poor. It's all that they had. That's why Jesus was laid in a feeding trough. Listen to the words of one of your authors, Scott Basiniker. He said this. The the very first statement Jesus ever made about his concern for the poor, oppressed, and marginalized was when he cried out as one of them, eyes shut tight, Mouth open wide, wailing and kicking. It was one of the most profound acts of solidarity with the poor he could make. When Jesus said he loved the poor, he absolutely meant it. The word of God always leans towards the poor. Take care of the widow. Take care of the orphan. Live open-handed to those in need. Take care of the strangers in the land, those that are on the outskirts, those that are barely making making it by. Help them. It says, he who oppresses a poor man 
insults his maker. To neglect the poor is a dangerous game to play. He who oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. When we love the poor, Jesus takes it personally. And why wouldn't he? He was poor. He chose to enter human history as a part of a family living in a country under the oppression of Roman occupation. These people didn't have any money. They were dirt poor. He chose to announce his birth to a few poor shepherds working the night shift. Listen, maybe you're looking for God in your life. You're looking for him, trying to find him. Where can I find God? Maybe that's you. Let me give you a clue. You'll find him in his word. You'll find him wherever his followers gather. And you will find him in the eyes of the forgotten, the destitute, the poor. You'll find him there. I I love the vantage point of the shepherds every time I tell this story because... It reminds us that we serve a God who gave it all away. A God who became poor for us. A God who redeems and makes something new out of a mess, out of nothing. Maybe you're in here and you feel like your life is just a big mess. Maybe you feel like it's amounted to nothing. Maybe you're going, I... God doesn't even know my name, much less have a future and a hope planned out for me. I'm such a mess. Maybe you feel like one of those shepherds. Or maybe you know someone who's a mess and you avoid them because you don't want their mess to become your mess. Memory is a fickle thing. Is it not? Stories and events change over time in our minds. But they don't really. The real story stays the same, constant, set in stone, forever unchanging. God chose to announce the birth of the one who would change everything, who would set it all right, the King of Kings, the Messiah. He chose to announce his birth to a few poor shepherds working the night shift outside of Bethlehem. Delinquents, social outcasts, they were a mess. But isn't it interesting that Jesus would one day be known as a shepherd? As the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Memory is a fickle thing, but whatever you do, don't forget this. The Christmas story is about God making something beautiful out of a mess, out of you, out of me. This story is not over. A story as epic and far-reaching and important as this one. 
takes more than one telling to convey. More than one vantage point to fully understand. That's why I'll be back next time for the next vantage point of those you call the wise men. Don't miss it. Go and remain seated just there for a moment. And we just wanted to give you an opportunity that, as Pastor Jake shared, as a storyteller, that um, it doesn't matter what kind of mess we're in, God's always willing to meet us right where we are. And just like these shepherds, they didn't have a whole lot of viable things they weren't uh, the people that can make decisions in the community but they had their problems they had their issues but they're one of the first ones that Jesus asked to be at his birth and it gives us a good glimpse that it doesn't matter who we are God accepts us right where we're at no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've experienced, no matter what's going on right now in this moment or what decisions you've made, he'll meet you right where you're at. I know that there was a time in my life when I ran away from God and he had to pursue me and I just knew there was always a tug in my heart that he was coming after me. In this song, Reckless Love, it refers to how he'll leave the 91, 99 to go after the one, and that's what he does. You know, in the Old Testament, in the old times, shepherds had a bad name, but Jesus turned that, up, turned that upside down on its head, and he gave it a, a new name. He said, I am the good shepherd because he cares for us. He longs for us. He wants to be near us and just like a good shepherd he watches over his flock and if one leaves he goes and does whatever he can to bring it back into the fold so as we sing this song the prayer workers will be on the sides and if you need prayer if there's some kind of mess going on in your life it's okay God's willing and able to meet you right there in that moment and they can pray with you. If you never said yes to Jesus and you're just feeling them tugging on your heart, this is a great time to just say that little prayer. Say, God, come into my life. Lord, make your home in my heart and help me to live for you each and every day. And if there be anything else, any hurt, pain, struggles, worries, anxiety, whatever it may be, these people are here to pray with you or as we sing, just Give it to God and say, God, just take this from me because I can't handle it anymore, but I know that you can help me. So God, we thank you 
We thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. And Lord, that each day, no matter what we've done, God, we can humbly come before you, Lord. And receive your grace. God, thank you for being the shepherd. Thank you for being in my mess and helping me out of it, God. And I pray that you do the same today and throughout the week as people hear about you and as they focus their lives on you, God, change their hearts and their minds for your glory and for your purpose.